would be an understatement to say that we are living in uncertain times. In fact, in many ways, we're living in, in some cases, tumultuous times, with no signs of reprieve. But for as bad as things might seem right now, it is the fear of the unknown that I think has got people crazy. I would even dare to say that I've never seen a time where there has been more uh, fear being propagated and, and experienced by people. Such an unbridled fear and anxiety. Fear of sickness, fear of dying, fear of terrorism, fear of losing freedoms, fear of financial and economic collapse, fear of war, fear of starvation, you name it. I mean, pick a fear and there's always something to be afraid of. Every time someone on TV talks about something bad happening, it seems as though we just respond on cue with fear. We become anxious, we begin to worry. And then once we begin to worry, we become defensive. And then we get angry. And this is the point where we become hopeless. And this is where many people right now find themselves in a place of despair and hopelessness. And it seems as though the world is caving in on people, and they're losing their minds in some places. But how are we to respond? That's always where I like to go. You look at culture, you look at what's going on in the world, and how, how then shall we do it? How do we respond to all this? What do we do? Does God have anything to say to us about what's going on and what we are to do about it? And let me answer that emphatically. He absolutely does. So turn with me to Psalm 46. Psalm 46, this is a favorite psalm of many believers over the course of history. This really was the inspiration behind Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And in his comments about this psalm, Martin Luther actually writes, We sing this song to the praise of God, he says, because God is with us and powerfully and miraculously preserves and defends His church and His word against all fanatical spirits, against the gates of hell, against the implacable hatred of the devil, and against all the assaults of the world, the flesh, and sin. Psalm 46 is a arousing psalm about the power and the sovereignty of God in the face of insurmountable circumstances. And like many psalms in the Bible, it comes with a superscription of something written before the psalm begins, directions for the singers. And if you look at Psalm 46, this is not a heading added in by Bible translators later. This is actually in the psalm itself. And it says that this is for the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah. It's believed that the sons of Korah uh, were a Levitical singing group in Israel, and they would have led the people of God, the people of Israel, to praise and worship the Lord. And then we read that the psalm is set to Alamoth. Now, frankly, we don't really know what Alamoth means or what it is. But some scholars and commentators believe that this word Alamoth is, uh, is similar to or referring to the Hebrew word for maiden. And so if that's the case, it's possible that this song was written to be sung by female voices. That's certainly possible, but we can't be sure, and it's okay that we don't really know. What is sure about Psalm 46 is that it is directed toward the worshipers of Israel, and it is applicable to all of us, all believers, this applies to. And so we look at this together. Psalm 46. The very word of God. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear. Though the earth should change. And though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. 
Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. Come behold the works of the Lord. Who has wrought desolations in the earth? He who makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. Breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. Now, in every single psalm, there is a theme, in some cases many themes. But Psalm 46 is really a psalm of praise and thanksgiving and even trust. This has been sung by the people of God in Israel. It's been sung by many believers throughout the course of history. As to the occasion of this specific psalm, we're not exactly sure. There's lots of theories. It's obvious, though, that the, the people of God, in the context of this psalm, are in distress. Some scholars think that this was com composed uh, during the height of a military threat. That could certainly be. But again, we're not sure. Again, what we are sure of is the everlasting truth of these verses. And so, for our time tonight, I want to give you three basic points that follow the three basic stanzas of this psalm. And a statement of trust that's punctuating each of these stanzas. And so we're going to look at each of these tonight together. So we're going to start with number one. Number one, stanza one, really, is God's power over nature. God's power over nature. Verse one is really the key declaration of the entire psalm, and it sets the tone throughout the entire thing. Again, reading in verse one, the psalmist says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. The name for God here is given, it's Elohim here, but this is the name, this is the same God, Yahweh, the great I Am. And what is confessed about the Lord, the God of Israel? It says here that God is our refuge and strength. The first declaration is that God is our refuge. The Hebrew word is Masay, it refers to a hiding place, a shelter from the storm. Have you ever been caught in a, a rainstorm or in a thunderstorm? We certainly have. I remember I told my church this story as well. My wife and I were, she was uh, expecting our son. It was our first child, and we're outside, and I'm a pretty oblivious guy. We're out at the waterfront, we're at the ocean, and we see these dark clouds rolling in. And everybody starts to pack up their stuff from the beach, and they scurry off. And my wife and I were still standing there, just watching these clouds come across the water. And at a certain point, it dawns on me, we should probably find some shelter. And once we realize that this is right on top of us, we go and run into our car, and the ocean sooner do we shut the doors, that this massive hailstorm dumped on us. We've never been more scared in our entire lives. But I'll tell you one thing, we were very happy to have a place of refuge in this terrible, terrible storm. And so that's what this imagery certainly refers to, this shelter providing protection and safety. But this refuge can also be the refuge from war, a fallout shelter, if you will. Many people in war-torn countries, they will build for themselves bomb shelters in their basement or in their closet, a place where they can safely hide 
uh, if an attack were to come. And so God is our fallout shelter, if you will. He is our refuge, our protection. And then we read God is also our strength. He is our strength. The Hebrew word is oz. It means might or strength. It refers to God's own omnipotence, the fact that he is all-powerful, that he reigns and retains all power and sovereignty over the created order. And these twin verses here in the Psalms, they're, they're prominent all throughout the entire book of the Psalms, just a couple places. In Psalm 62, verses 7 and 8, On God my salvation and my glory rests. The rock of my strength, my refuge, is in God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Or Psalm 68, verse 35. O God, You are awesome from Your sanctuary. The God of Israel Himself gives strength and power to His people. Or even Psalm 71, 7. I have become, the Lord is saying this, I have become a marvel to many, or excuse me, that's the psalmist, for you are my strong refuge. Both in the same verse, you are my strong refuge. So refuge and strength, refuge and strength, that's our God. It describes Him and articulates His presence among us. But then the psalmist adds another declaration. God is a very present help in trouble. This word for help in the Hebrew is Ezra. It's a notion of support that comes for the vulnerable. It's divine assistance, if you will. And I want you to notice something, and I pay attention to your text here. It's not that God gives us help. It's that God is our help. There's a huge difference there. He himself is our very present help when we're in trouble. We need only God when we're in trouble. In a sense of, of very present is ever present. He's always there. God is never leaving us. He's a constant comfort to us. This is the same Lord who tells Joshua that he's about to thrust him into a world of trouble. And then he tells him, he says, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Therefore, Joshua, be strong and courageous. Don't be troubled, don't be, uh, troubled or dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua 1, 5, 9. This is meant to cement this truth into our minds that God is our refuge and our strength. He is a very present help in our greatest times of trouble. And then verse 2, we really read the determined response from God's people. If verse 1 is true, then what is the natural response for us as believers? Verse 2 and 3, Therefore, the people of God say, Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, Though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Verses 2 and 3 recount four terrifying catastrophes that take place. In our English translations, if you were to read this, I'm using the New American Standard. It's the only really good translation left. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, New American Standard Bible, I love the NSV. You guys use the NSV, right? That's why, that's, why, that's why I love you so much. Uh, anyway, in the translation of the text, the, the English word, though, is used before each of one of these cataclysmic uh, events here. Though the earth should change, though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and though the mountains quake at its falling pride, it punctuates the verses. And each of these occurrences are massive. Furthermore, each of these natural phenomena 
they're seemingly steadfast and immovable things. The earth is considered constant and stable. We don't really have very many earthquakes in New Hampshire. We take that for granted. In other places in the world, there's lots of earthquakes. You don't take it for granted that the earth is always stable. But for us, that's our perception. It's constant. It's stable. What about mountains? Mountains are stable. They don't move very much. It's not like when the wind blows, the mountains go with it. They're not like trees. What about the sea? The sea is deep and wide and foreboding. It's vast. We can't wrap our arms around the sea. It is a constant. These are natural boundaries that keep us grounded as people. We, we, we look at the, the land and the sea and the mountains and it keeps us stable. We're protected in a way. There is a natural fortification to these things. Which is why, beloved, it is all the more terrifying when we experience an earthquake or a damaging flood or a volcano. And our rocks, it rocks our groundedness. I don't know if you've ever seen the video of the, the day that Mount St. Helens erupted. There's actual video of this. And if you watch the, the video of the half this mountain erupts and falls down and slips down the side, it happens in nine seconds. At the end of nine seconds, half the mountain is gone. The forest is destroyed and people actually pass away. In nine seconds, everything changed. And so, again, here, the thing that is supposed to be constant and stable and immovable suddenly collapses and swallows up everything around it. And when that happens, we become unglued. Yet God's people understand that He is our refuge and strength. And so they declare, therefore, we will not fear. We will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains were to slip into the heart of the sea, though the waters would roar and foam and consume us, Though the mountains would quake at its swelling pride. Notice that they don't say, we have no cause to fear. They do have cause to fear. And notice that they don't say, we don't feel afraid. No, the declaration of the will is, we will not fear. So if it's a declaration of will, it's a, it's a steadfastness of purpose. Why? Well, because they feared and trusted and knew. God more than they feared the earth collapsing around them. In fact, they pondered this truth, which is why at the end of the first stanza here, this word is Selah. Now, scholars are debated over what this word Selah means. Some believe that it could mean praise. Other people believe it means pause and think and meditate, stop and listen. But regardless of the meaning, there's a definite implication here. And when you see this word Selah, it does give you an opportunity to stop and think and ponder and praise for the Lord's goodness and His power over nature. And then we see that under the second stanza, number two, God's power over attackers. God's power over attackers. Verse four begins a new stanza, and it pertains to the city of God. The city of God. Verse four, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. One of the prominent features of the Bible is the existence of a holy city. On earth, it refers to Jerusalem, also known as Zion. But even the, in the new heavens, we will see a feature of a great city called New Jerusalem. What is so special about this city? Well, this city becomes a symbolic home for God. You know that God dwells in all places. God is omnipresent. But he identifies with 
the dwelling place of this city. These are where my people are. And I say symbolic again because God is omnipresent, but he, he chooses to identify and make his dwelling place. You can think about the, the tabernacle, the temple. He chooses to identify and make his dwelling in that place. Furthermore, the holy city is where he gathers his people to live with them for eternity. This is very encouraging. And Jesus says this in John 14. He promises the disciples that he is going to go away prepare a place for them, a home for them. And he says, it's my father's house. We're going to go to my father's house. Again, an identifiable dwelling place in the heavenly city. But over and over again, as a theme, we see this reference made to the holy city, Zion, the dwelling place of God. In fact, in, in Psalm 48, we read this, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, in the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. God in her places has made himself known as a stronghold. Again, this imagery doesn't take away from the doctrine of God's omnipresence. After all, God is spirit. But the purpose here is to identify and locate where the people of God go to be with him. God, I want to be where you are. That's the sense. I want to be close to you, O Lord. That's why in verse 4 it says that the city of God is the holy dwelling of the Most High. They know in their minds that if I want to go to see the Lord, and this is Israel, by the way, they have to journey up to Jerusalem and, and see Him there. Later on, again, in John chapter 4, Jesus says, well, it's not this mountain or that mountain. You worship the Lord in spirit and truth. Wherever we're gathered together, the Lord is certainly among us. But here again, it's not just that God is there, but God is also the one who sustains that city. That's my city, you would say. Verse 4, there is a river whose streams make glad in the city of God. In the ancient world, it was essential to build a city near a water source, whether it was a lake or a river, in order to sustain the city. So the waters that came into the city, they produced uh, the life that was the life source for that city. It's interesting to note that Ezekiel's vision of the future kingdom, he makes reference to Ezekiel 47, to a river that flows out from under the threshold of the temple. And the river runs through and waters the entire city. And John actually notes the exact same kind of thing in his vision in Revelation 22. John says this, this is in the end, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And so there's this imagery of this life source, this river that comes out from the city of God and waters everything near it. And he says here in Psalm 46, he calls this river that which makes glad the city of God. This beautiful river, it waters and just makes everything beautiful. And all the inhabitants rejoice at this life-giving water. But again, what does this mean? Well, it means, as with other cities, they are reliant on natural resources to sustain their life. But here in the city of God, it's different. Because here in the city of God, He is the one who provides the waters. He is the river of life that sustains them. So God is the, the sustenance of life here. Furthermore, verse 5, God is in the midst of her. 
Not, even, not only that he doesn't take care of her and, and see her there and provide for her, he's in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning comes. So God is with us. He sustains the city and all the people who dwell there. Remember, he's our refuge and our strength. He's our, our fortress and our defense. The city of God will not be moved because God will not let it be moved. He's steadfast himself. And even in the valley of the shadow of death, like a marvel, Psalm 23, illustrates that God will help her when morning dawns. Well, what does that mean? Because God brings us all the way to the darkness of night. The darkness of night. Ever, ever have something happen to you late at night? You can't sleep or there's a storm outside or you're worried about something? And doesn't it feel like the night's just never going to end? It goes on and on and on. You look at your watch, look at the clock. It just seems to go on and on, and the dark of the night just feels so foreboding. And then as soon as the light comes up, as soon as you see the sun, you don't worry anymore. You say, oh, it's morning. I can get up and start my day, and everything's going to be okay. And things don't ever seem as bad in the daytime as they do in the night. There's something to that, I believe. There's this idea of, of the, the, uh, the forces of evil coming in and attacking the city. It's happening at night. They're being raided at night. In the earthly city of Jerusalem, they've been attacked for centuries, but even on this day, there are forces of darkness that come in, attack God's holy city, and verse 6 says that the nations will make an uproar, the kingdom will totter. What does God do? What does He do when, when the night comes down and they're bringing their forces against the city? What does God do? The Bible says here, verse 6, He raised His voice in the earth mountain. God exerts His power. I want you to notice that both the voice of the Lord is both powerful to create and to destroy. Psalm, excuse me, Genesis 1 and 2 speaks of, of the power of God's voice to create. In the beginning, God creates all things, and, and the Lord said, and it was. The Lord said, and it was. The Lord said, and it was. So God's voice creates. We're reminded here, even Psalm 29, that says the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord breaks the pieces uh, in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire and strips the forest bare, bare and all in His temple cry glory. So God's voice is powerful. But even when the armies of the world attack us, it is God. All He has to do is utter one word, and they will all melt like wax. So God's voice is powerful to create and to destroy. And to defend. Verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. This title, Lord of hosts, is the Hebrew word Sabaoth, often translated Lord Almighty. And this Almighty God is with us. And the idea of God being with us should raise some flags in your mind. I've heard this before, you might say. Certainly. In fact, the prophesied name for Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And this with us God is all-powerful. He is ever-present. He is our stronghold. He is our steadfast hope. And God is powerful to defend His people even from opposition and attackers. And let me tell you, beloved, the church is always under attack. We're always under attack. And we feel like we have to be the ones to, to stand up and fight for the church and defend the church on our strength and our power. But it's God, actually. God defends us. 
He is our refuge. He is our strength. And it's His voice from His Word that does the protection. And all God's people say, Selah. Ponder that truth. God protects us. God defends us. He's our steadfastness. Fasten that truth into your mind, brother. We need that truth. We need to know this. Selah. And finally, number three, God's power over the whole world. Over the whole world. This final stanza, verses 8 through 11, contains what scholars refer to as a prophetic oracle. It's a vision of what God is going to do in the future. And it pertains to the coming judgment of God over the whole world at the second coming of Christ, the day of the Lord. And the psalmist is inviting the people of God to witness God's judgment on the unrighteous at the end of the age. We read about this in verse 8. He says, Come behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. Some have seen here the, the works of the Lord as referring to all of God's mighty works. The exodus, the conquest of Israel, even salvation itself, and that certainly could be. But here, in the context here, if you look at it, the works of the Lord... The context here is that he's talking about the declaration of, of desolations on the earth. It's judgment. The context is judgment. To put an end to rebellious raging of nations. Verse 9. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Notice that all these imagery, all this imagery is the same. It's the bow, the spear, and the chariot. These are all imagery imagery of war. These are all tools of warfare. But God will destroy the armies of the enemy and put a stop to their campaign of wickedness. This is later prophesied in Isaiah 2.4. God will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again Will they learn war? There's coming a day, beloved, when wars will stop. Wars will cease. And it will be God that puts an end to it. We won't do it ourselves. God will do it. We see the same thing in Ezekiel 39, in Micah 4, 3, in Zechariah 9, 10. Same imagery over and over again. God will put an end to war and oppression and persecution and wickedness. Why is this important to know? Why must we know this? Because right now, the nations are raging. The nations are always raging, but sometimes it feels like they rage more than other times. The wicked appear to be prospering. Our enemies are persecuted, and we see many are suffering. And our impulse, when we see all of this, we turn on the news, we put on the, the internet news, whatever you, wherever you get your source, we put this on, and our impulse in response to this is to become angry. And then our response is to fear, and to worry, and to rage. And so many people, under the banner of Christ right now, especially in our country, are resorting to this anger and rage and this sort of mustering up of, I have to do something. In essence, we are either doing that, we're either raging or we're running and hiding and being afraid. But what does the Lord say? Because here's what, this is very cool. In verse 10, 
the Lord steps into the psalm and he speaks. Up to this point, this is the psalm is talking about the Lord. Now the Lord himself speaks. Look at verse 10. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. This phrase, cease striving, the word is rapah. It means to literally to drop the hands or to, to become slack, to cease from effort, to kind of just sort of let it go. That's the, the sense of it. And normally you see, maybe you'll see Psalm 4610 printed on a, a Thomas Kincaid painting. In a, in a bookstore, and you'll, you'll see the, the rivers and the wheat field, and it's all very calming and reassuring. But that's really not the sense of this verse here. Really, if this was to be printed on something more accurately, the picture would be of a boxer who's just been beaten up after going 12 rounds, and he's beaten until his face is swollen, and then the phrase comes in stop fighting, cease striking, drop your hands, drop your guard, throw in the towel, and sit down. Because that's us. We feel like we're the, the weary boxer, fighting and agonizing and, and working hard and slugging it out and, and picking ourselves up by the bootstraps. And at a certain point, God says, Enough. Stop striving. Drop your hands. Stop. And as you stop, the command is this Know that I am God. Now, this does not mean we don't care about what's going on in the world. Certainly we are to love what God loves and hate what God hates. It doesn't mean that we're apathetic to suffering and evil. If you can do something, then you can do it, of course. But rather, what it means is that we're not going to lose our minds and rage like the world rages. We don't respond to them in their needs. We respond to the world and to our own circumstances in the way that God prescribes. No, we're going to cease striving. We're going to be still. We're not going to fear. And in doing so, we're going to engage in the active discipline of knowing that God is God. That's work to do. To know, to fix your mind on truth and know, I confess, you are God and I'm going to stop and submit and bow to me and acknowledge you as sovereign. That's not in our natural impulse. Our natural impulse is to say, I got to fix it. I have to do something. I got to make it better. But God says, No, I'm going. Stop working, cease striving, and know that I am God. And then He says, On the tail end of that, here's the promise I will be exalted among the nations. It's not a, well, I, that's, that's the general idea. Maybe I will. No, He says, I will. Be exalted among the nations. That's believers and unbelievers alike, by the way. I will be exalted in the earth, he says. Isn't that what Paul declares at the end of Philippians, or the middle of Philippians chapter 2? He says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is not something he hopes to do or might do. He will do this. This is the plan. That all peoples, all nations, all tribes, tongues of the earth, every single person in heaven, on earth, under the earth, will acknowledge you as sovereign. And so what does that do for us? It encourages our hearts, doesn't it? 
We are meant to take heart and know that God is sovereign and He's good and He will be exalted. Don't worry about whether or not He will be exalted. He will be exalted. And then we read in verse 11 the response from the people, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. God is with us. He is our refuge. He is our strength. He is our help. He is the Lord Almighty. The Lord Sabaoth. And He will be exalted. And so what about for today? What do we do? Isn't there always kind of like application of marching orders at the end of a sermon? What's, what do we do? What's the takeaway? I'm glad you asked. Turn over to Psalm 37 in your Bible. Psalm 37. These words are a great comfort to me as a believer. I trust they'll be comforts to you as well. But we're going to end here tonight in Psalm 37. Again, this oftentimes goes against our natural impulse when we see the wicked prospering. But hear the word of the Lord. This is a Psalm of David, Psalm 37. Do not fret because of evildoers. Do not be envious toward wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as light, and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out good schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it only leads to evildoing. For evildoers will be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. And he will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Stop there. These words, I believe, are a prescription for us. A word from God is a way to help navigate ourselves through these troubled times. Beloved, we are meant to know that we can trust the Lord. He's totally trustworthy. And I know you know that, but we are meant to know that. And remind ourselves constantly that God is the Lord and He is sovereign over all of us. Now, you might say, I don't know all of you sitting here in this room, but you might be saying, Well, I don't know if I know the Lord. I don't know if He is my refuge and my strength. And so, what do you do? How do I know if God is with me? Well, the truth of the matter is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And apart from any kind of righteousness credited to you, you have no righteousness. All of sin and fall short, and the wages of that sin is death. And so by yourself, with no one to save you, no one to redeem you, the punishment is an eternity in hell, paying for our own sins. But God has made a way. God has reached down and given us His Son. He's given us Christ who himself is truly God and truly man, two natures in one, 
the perfect sacrifice, the only Messiah. And Christ came to this earth and lived a perfect, sinless, flawless life. And then gave up that life on the cross and died to pay the penalty for sinners. Every sin, past, present, and future for those who trust in Him. He was buried and rose again the third day, vindicating His act of sacrifice, appeasing the Father completely, and demonstrating new life for us. He resurrected and ascended. And the Bible says, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave us His only begotten Son. And here's the promise. Whosoever believes in Him will not perish. The rocks and the storms and all the, the tumult of this other song, that won't crush us. We will not perish, but everlasting life in Him. We'll be with Him forever. And so just in case there's someone here who does not know the Lord, examine yourself and see that you know Christ and see that you've been forgiven of your sins and see that God really is your refuge and your strength that you trust Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the truth that it is. And Lord, even though we can come back to these familiar places in Scripture, places like Psalm 46 and John 3.16 and whatever our favorite verses would be, we come back to these like coming back to a well. And Lord, the well is so deep that we can't possibly drink up all of this reviving water that would feed our soul. We have to just come to this message and this sermon and this evening with one little cup. And Lord, allow us to sip from the waters of your word. Lord, that you would be the river of life that flows through this church and waters and makes glad this congregation, Lord. You are our refuge and our strength. We're meant to delight in you and find our satisfaction in you and find our hope in you. But Lord, the, the world rages. They rage against us. They rage against righteousness. They rage against you. I pray, Lord, help us not to grow slack, not to grow apathetic, not to grow uncaring, not to walk in the flesh, but also not to worry and fear and become angry and disenfranchised. Help us, Lord, to build faith, to trust in you, because you are our only hope. And so, God, we acknowledge you, and we are, in this moment, going to be still and cease striving and know that you truly are God, and you will be exalted among the nations, and you will be exalted in your We thank you for the blessing of your word. We ask you, Lord, Shine your face on us. Please, tonight, Lord, we thank you for this. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.